0: Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host Frank Troyce, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way we're not going to follow a scripted organized discussion but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind and more importantly ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues and with that let's get on with this week's edition of unhedged today's broadcast is brought to you today by oracle oracle helps customers develop roadmaps migrate to the cloud and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com slash unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Well, Parag, again, thank you so much for your time today, and I know we have a a quick window with you. and. you. uh, and first off, and I know this is going to sound uh, uh, very psychophantic, but but couldn't have enjoyed your book, The Future is Asian, enough. And and um, uh, again, kudos to you. I, I, I think a massive topic, massively dense and incredibly readable. So uh, kudos to you for, for taking it and distilling it down to that level.
1: Thanks so much. And you know, it was uh, a labor of love, like all books are, but also I... Uh Kind of, I've always appreciated that expats like you and me are a natural audience for me. And now narrowing that down to those of us who are in Asia, I sort of doubly feel that you know you and I and the millions of us uh, you know who have come from the U.S. or Europe who live out here, we just sort of naturally get it. So on the one hand, I obviously greatly appreciated, uh, you know, your feedback and, uh, but on the other hand, I'd like to think that so many of the things I wrote are just obvious, right? They're obvious to you and me. Well, yeah, you know, let, let, let's,
0: let's, let's take that a step further because the, the, one of the fun points about this was, was leading up to this. I actually, uh, I have the bad habit of reading, reading several books at the same time and, and, um, I apologize. The title's escaping me right now, but uh, in the title was a reference to Marco Polo, and it came from a, a, a DC strategist.
1: It's Marco Polo's world, uh, Robert Kaplan. That's uh, it. It's actually my mentor, one of my truly great um, in- mentors in the world. Yep.
0: Oh, fantastic. So, you know, and 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 through that, you know, there there in each of his essays, he's referencing you know your work, your prior work, and and again, I think for our listeners, it 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 this this could go a number of different directions. So the the In the spirit of of maybe jumping into the deep end of the pool, let's use another book as a point of reference, which uh, uh, Graham Allison's Destined for War, which which is a very uh, negative uh, uh, potential outcome in terms of China.
1: It's a warning. It's a it's a shot across the bow. You know, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Graham's. He's also a friend and and a mentor. And, uh, you know, these are you know, we all come at it from different points of view. You know, I mean, I think that uh, Graham is taking a structural view about uh, rising, declining powers, power transitions, fairly standard kind of, you know, historical prism that drives largely from European historical experience. And they he and his team did a very rigorous assessment of European history and patterns of rise and decline. It's just that it doesn't necessarily apply in the global stage uh, with this vast geographic template that involves, you know, sort of the US and China, uh, you know, Atlantic and Pacific sort of theaters. So I'm not sure of the exact relevance per se, but, um, you know, I do think that it's important for us to study power transitions and to learn the lessons. It's just that I think the outcome is not going to be one winner. I, I view us heading into a multipolar world and so that's where, you know, uh, Bob Kaplan comes in, because he also sees not a world of a neat and tidy power transition of China replacing America. He sees a much more messy. His word is claustrophobic. Yeah. Uh, kind of Eurasian landscape. And that's where he and I are very much in agreement. We're in agreement about a lot of things. Um and uh, the only area where Bob and I differ, and he invited me to do a long rebuttal to his book in uh, CNAS, the think tank that he's affiliated with on, their, on in their journal. And I did, except I couldn't really rebut much because we agree. But there's only one area where he and I differ, and this is one that's, that's crucial for, you, for your topics and interests and listeners, and that's the issue of state capacity. You know he talks about a eurasian balkans you know he talks about a weakening of states a fragmentation collapsing of states and all of these kinds of things due to the stresses and forces of overpopulation and disease and volatility of markets and climate change the ways that he identified very famously in his essay the coming anarchy uh, almost 30 years ago um what i see though as i travel all across asia as you do as well is rising state capacity I see governments from uh, Pakistan to Uzbekistan, to Kazakhstan, to Indonesia, to the Philippines, Thailand, all making their best or near best efforts to become effective governments in ways that they have not been in decades of post-colonialism. So that's where he's sort of a glass half empty and I'm a glass half full kind of guy. And what I do is I try to measure it. You know, I go out there and you see my statistical analysis and you see my, um, my sort of, uh, I bring to, to the fore, the kind of research by the World Bank and by uh, other think tanks to point to these issues about state capacity. Are budgets expanding? Is social expenditure increasing? Are the number of hospital beds growing? You know, are students going through K-12 through education? You know, uh, are they building infrastructure? And those are the tangible measurements of state capacity. So I like to think that you know, I'm not just observing these things passively. I'm providing the data that proves that Asia is increasing its capacity and is stable and stabilizing, and that's a very good thing.
0: Yeah, well, the, let's go back to something you said earlier in, in regards to, um, uh, you know, again, using using the paradigm of Ellis, and and, and and regrettably I was at a trade commission event yesterday, and and again, coming from a very Western American-centric point of view, as you alluded to, Americans like to think of winners and losers so that it's very binary for them and 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 in your book you you actually take a very what what I would say pragmatic optimistic tone in terms of of it's it's not as the as bad as you think in fact it's not bad it's just a new model a new paradigm as we move forward and 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 not to oversimplify it but I, I think for again just wearing my american hat I think Americans are concerned that China, for example, has imperialistic ambitions, that there's a bigger agenda behind this. Is that really the case, or or do Americans really need to look at this as, as much more of a synergistic relationship that could be there?
1: You know, it's both, and both are compatible. There's no question that a rising global superpower like China has global ambitions. Imperialism, you know, really is not the right word per se, because they don't have a Western mission civil there isn't an idea out there that other countries need to become chinese or become like china uh, they're not trying to export democracy or communism or authoritarianism it, democ- authoritarianism is convenient for china but they're not literally actively exporting it they're also go- coming about this more from a mercantile point of view and that's obviously an early stage of imperialism there's no question about it but china began its international expansionism in the 90s simply as a function of becoming the world's largest importer of raw materials. And because mm-hmm. its economy was growing so fast, it had no choice but to reach out through investment and supply chain expansion and sort of, you know, commercial and uh, diplomacy and strategic engagement, even military ties with countries that are its crucial commodities providers. Um, it didn't do so because it said, we will have a strategy of actively... Uh, you know, picking off uh, countries that America tries to isolate because we want to put them down for the sake of putting them down. It's my goodness, Venezuela, Iran, Russia, these countries have a lot of oil and we need a lot of oil. And, you know, Western policy may be one thing, but we're desperate for raw materials. Mm-hmm. That's actually mm-hmm. how it starts. You know, it doesn't start with uh Make them love democracy so they'll buy Chiquita bananas, you know, that's, right, right. it's a different kind of thing. <laughs> but there is an evolution to these things over history in which you start with a sort of, you know, defensive supply chain protection. It becomes a, a expansionist neo-mercantilism because you're a big exporter as well as importer. And of course, China is the largest exporter of, uh, you know, basic finished goods as well, the manufacturing sector. And then it becomes a sort of, well, you know, we really need to pertain and sus- protect and sustain the supply chain system that we have. And that's going to require a bit of military investment in the Belt and Road strategy. And then you get your debt trap diplomacy and then poof, you've got the whole world saying you're, a, you're an imperial power. But there's varieties of imperialism and Chinese imperialism is quite different. But more importantly, it's a different world. You know, you can't just pretend that this is the world of the 18th century where the British East India Company shows up with its gunboats and it simply subdues an entire continent. Um, That's not what China is doing, that's not what China can do. That's what China is failing at, even if it tried. You know, you could count on a couple of hands, I mean, you know, facetiously, the number of Chinese troops that are outside the country of China, right? Mm -hmm. Because the minute a Chinese soldier goes anywhere, he's pretty much DOA. Mm -hmm. It's not the 18th century. So China has to be so much more cautious uh, than the West was during the imperial heyday. You know, my punchline in the book is China has had to learn in three years what Britain had 300 years to learn. Um, and that's that's, you know, it's a different world. So I, I, I think that, you know, sovereignty, democracy, transparency, uh, the scrutiny over everything China does, the, the lessons of imperialism, because most of the world population has just come out of colonialism. Most of the world population is quite on guard against the new colonialism or imperialism. So one of the reasons I don't worry that much at all about Chinese imperialism is because the whole world is on guard against it. And that's mm-hmm. what so much of this book is about and my articles and my reporting are about, is I go to, whether it's uh, you know close at hand countries like Malaysia or Myanmar, or I go to Pakistan or Uzbekistan or... or or Kenya, or Sri Lanka, all these countries are doing their level best right now to reduce their exposure to China. So how can we be at the early stage of a neo-imperial Chinese world when already countries are cutting back on the degree, the amount of China in their diet?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So mm-hmm. this is why, whether it's, um, you know, again, I love him, but, but Graham Allison's historical analogies on power transitions or other people who talk about China as the new British East India Company... Let us just observe and respect the limits of historical analogies. Because this is where I would say, I don't want to use the word unique, but at least where my work is different from other people in my field. I'm simply pointing out that we live in a multipolar world. We're increasingly in a multipolar world. It's a global multipolar world rather than a European multipolar world. And that's not just a passing comment. That is a massive, with a capital M, structural, with a capital S, difference between this century, this entire era of history, and anything we've experienced before. And that has to be our common point of departure. I can't have a debate about international relations and power transitions where people are leading by historical analogies from a European world when we live in a very different global world. Um, And so, you know, I, I, I think I'm trying to win over as many people as possible. And I think you know, uh, sort of lecture by lecture, successfully uh, to the point of view that this is a different world. And once you start to accept that, you can accept that that you know we there there are limits to how much the past is going to teach us about the future.
0: Well, you know, to to, to your point, actually, to to um, w- one of the other things that you did a good job of one one of the sections in the book that I really really enjoyed, and it was uh, it was a great discussion point for for me with the kids, and I, I technically shouldn't call them kids because they're teenagers now, but you You go through uh, the history from from the lens of asia and and one of the interesting things was you know one, it, so i I would push back on you gently saying and and again, looking at your watch to tell you the time that I, I agree with you. it's not new. and and I think one of the important things you did in the book was to put it in context to say, you know it's it's just to pick on me it's new to me because i never knew this before but the reality is this this context and 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 uh, uh process has been there before for the chinese it's not new this this is and again just using them as, as a straw well, man
1: in it's not new for chinese it's not new for indians it's not new for indonesians it's not yeah. new for any it's not certainly not new for persians it's not new for any asian civilization that knows its history and quite frankly a lot of it was new to me as as well even though i was born in this part of the world uh, but i obviously am totally american and so i learned western civilization uh, you know every single year after year in the exact sequence that i mentioned it in the beginning of that chapter and just as an aside to any of your listeners who ever want to write a book do not try to compress 4000 years <laughs> of history into 30 pages i am honestly thrilled by the response to that chapter i mean you know whether it is teachers writing to me i know that in the kind of curricula of high school around the world this is going to be required reading them and I'm very pleased but let me just tell you why um, it's because that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life I mean I haven't climbed a mountain as hard as having to write that one chapter of this one book there's never ever been a tougher literary assignment that I have faced than writing that chapter well, and it, I, it, oh, I brought it upon upon my, myself it was so unbelievably painful it took almost a year of my life with help <laughs> to write that chapter <laughs> But in the end, it was worth it because so many facts and narratives and and almost sort of, you know, interpretations uh, came out of there that taught me so much about how to think about the big picture. And I've already a pretty big picture macro guy. So I, I stand by it. I'm, again, really pleased that it's kind of taking hold. But, you know, you know we can discuss the, the details. Uh, but, you know, it's not new. But here's the thing, though. Actually, when you say it's not new to Chinese or to Indians, here's the thing, a lot of it is, and I'll tell you why, because they do suffer from the exact same, um, you know, sort of uh, 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 nationalistic tendencies that, that everyone else does. And I say this explicitly, you know, Korean, a Korean history of the world is, guess what, to- focuses on Korea. It right. does focus on India. So one of the reasons I wrote this book, unlike my previous books where it's like, you know, I'm an American talking to Americans. You know, here I was saying, yes, I'm an American talking to Americans and telling them how Asia is. But one of my points of departure here is that for 500 years, Asians have been pretty cut off from each other because of colonialism. Yeah. So Chinese may know China, but they don't know a damn thing about India indians may know india but they don't know a damn thing about japan and japanese know japan but they don't know a damn thing about russia and so on and so forth so if you take all the combinations of asian countries for 500 years they've known almost nothing about each other so part of why i wrote that chapter and wrote this book is actually because uh, there is an asian story of commerce conflict and culture an asian story of the silk roads and asians need to collectively have one Un- baseline understanding of their own history. And this is not just some narrow little corner of the world. We're talking about 5 billion people. So I was trying to perform a public service for 5 billion people here, uh, not just to introduce something for, you know, 10th graders in America.
0: <laughs> well, you, 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 uh, and again, I had no idea that, that the, the, the effort in the chapter, and again, it's, it's, uh, I would encourage our listeners that alone is, is, is worth the read. And, and again, I'll share with you one story. I, I, I shared your book with a friend of mine who manages a hedge fund back in New York. And uh, he called me up and he said, you know, he goes, my only exposure to Persia was Xerxes in the movie 300. <laughs> <it. laughs>
1: hey, that you know, as far as it goes, that's thought not so bad. <laughs> it was like totally, you know, let's just say it shaped a lot of like, like, you know, alpha male workouts. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I now take a sledgehammer and bang it on tires, too. Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> But you know you you bring up an interesting point. I, I another um uh, another book I I like holding yours against was um uh the book by John Lewis Gaddis uh, on grand strategy and and he he in in several sections alludes to the the commonality but at the same time he said you know there but for the Himalayas in India and China you know there was always a separation. Now now you know, because of technology, it's you know a fighter jet can go over any time and 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 do that. But again, to your point, the the commonality in terms of culture and how they look at how they look at things. And again, I, I I go back to this this question I would put to you: if you if you were Secretary of State tomorrow, let's say Pompeo decides to resign, I mean, and
1: let's assume I take a seat at Commerce, what what is the you take the White House rank and then 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 I'll take the job. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we'll give you Commerce too. You can dual hat. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Ed. But what 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 would you advocate from a policy
0: perspective? I mean, right now the 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 states is taking a a a kind of hardline view against China, but but at the same time, it seems as they took a step back. And, and 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 let me complicate it a little bit. China and India and Pakistan. How how at the end of the day, you know, would you would you play a nation states game with them and say, hey, look, you know, I'll be friends with everybody and keep them competing and use that as a check and balance against China. Or is there the opportunity here for the Americans to have a grand deal? Something back, and again, I hate to say it, back to Nixon-Kissinger when they made the first overture to China.
1: Yeah, in a way it's neither, you know, because it's their game, not our game. You know, the reason we were a big player in that game was because there were tensions between China and the Soviet Union that actually emerged exactly uh, 50 years ago. This year is the 50th anniversary of the Sino-Soviet Uh, conflict which occurred in in sort of Central Asian borderlands and uh, that was created a window obviously in a Cold War context, but you know, uh, just to sort of separate uh, the Soviet Union from China. But this is really different. This is their game that they're playing. There is a China-Pakistan-India triangle and we are not part of that triangle. You know, we have had a policy for the last 20, 25 years of trying to help India develop its confidence as a rival uh, to China. But the thing is, they're operating in different theatres. China is acting more as a terrestrial power with its Silk Road strategies and Belt and Road. And India, you mentioned uh, the Gaddis and the Himalayas earlier, is sort of hedged in. So and and of course, not only by geography, but also by its enemies like Pakistan. So, um, you know, India is not going to make a lot of headway in terms of its influence on the Eurasian landmass. Where India is going to focus and the way it's parted company with our original policy of trying to promote it as a continental balancer to China, is that India is really going to focus on its maritime strategy, its Indian Ocean strategy. It wants to be the dominant naval power in the Indian Ocean. And uh, quite frankly, it will, uh, because it really does obviously have the most fortuitous geography. Um, and as I mentioned in, the, in that chapter two about history, you know, for India, there are great eras of history were not when they were rivaling China on land, it was the Chola dynasty when they were a maritime mm-hmm. power trading with Africa and Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So India naturally sees itself as a naval power. It will indeed successfully contain uh, China in the Indian Ocean. And that's something that I go into in that chapter of the book that talks specifically about this whole triangular dynamic in the Arabian Sea and so forth. So, you know, what can we do if I were secretary of state? You know, for one thing, we still have an interest in stabilizing Afghanistan and Pakistan and jointly, and in doing so, we actually need China's help, because China is the largest investor and trading partner of both those countries. China now has an interest in stability in those countries because of its own trade corridors. So we could look at some burden sharing with China around shifting the antagonism between those two countries. When it comes to India and China, um, you know, we can work with India on in Indian Ocean maritime patrols as we're doing, you know, we have this thing called the Quad with India, Australia and Japan. That's a fairly uh, successful alignment of military and strategic interests among these countries but the key thing should not be to do their work for them it should be to do capacity building with them so they can solve their own problems so that means building up the indonesian navy as well the vietnamese navy and that's what i think the quad is increasingly getting focused on or at least it should be and that's what i would do to encourage um you know sort of um regional diplomatic cooperation so that you maintain multipolarity in asia um, you know, if I were sort of uh, calling the shots.
0: Do we really need to have the Pacific fleet there as much as we would? I mean, do we really need to to, to pivot? Or or to your point, is this something we can diplomatically achieve? And, and to your point, let India continue its expansion from a maritime perspective. Maybe we do take a step back with China regarding the uh, South China Sea Islands. I mean, do we really need to be there to the degree that we have in the past?
1: Well, I mean, I would say we need to be there. But then we should just not talk about whether it's more or less than the past, but whether it's appropriate to the circumstances of today versus the circumstances of the past. So right now, why do we need to be there? Well, there has been a post-war security umbrella that the United States has provided uh, you know, for Japan, for South Korea, for our allies, and that has helped to maintain a certain degree of strategic stability that has been an enabler of the rise of Japan, the Tigers, and China itself. Now the question is, Can there be a stable Asian order among Asian powers without us having a strong deterrent role there? The answer is not yet. Therefore, we still have to be there. How do we have to be there? Well, should we still have a Pacific fleet fleet, uh, in in the oceans and maintaining open sea lanes and helping navies to develop so that one does not dominate the others? Yes, we should do that. Um, Does it require that we be the tripwire? and that we put ourselves, you know, in the Taiwan Straits and uh, in the Spratly Islands, that I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. Because if Asian countries aren't willing to stand up to protect their own islands, then that tells you something about how strong a belief they have in that particular sovereignty. So I don't believe in going to war to salvage a rock in the Scarborough Shoal, I don't believe in going to war over Taiwan also because I think, you know, it's fairly there's a not a not a sufficient deterrence on both sides because Taiwan obviously is inferior, but it would be very costly to China to have a military approach uh, to Taiwan. And right now, I believe that even if we weren't there, the dynamics between the two of them are sufficiently intertwined that we're not likely to see a massive military uh, operation or conflict. There is the threat thereof, and China is using that threat very actively. But what it does the reason it does that, of course, is to sap the energy uh, of the rival, not to actually prepare to destroy the rival. That is such a huge source of investment and in technology for itself. So again, I think we do need to slowly back away. I think we do need to tell the Philippines and Taiwan, hey, time for you to bury the hatchet and we need to sell the same thing to our allies i mean south korea and japan are still at odds over historical apologies yeah. and uh, and this kind of stuff i mean this is ridiculous you know on the one hand i've written a book that praises asian maturity for, for keeping geopolitical tensions at bay while converging geoeconomically, and that is true it has happened it's a positive story on the other hand they're so immature still arguing over things that most people are now dead, you know, can't remember. So, uh, you know, I, I think that it's time for Asian countries to grow up, to take matters in their own hands, not just to maintain a balance of power for the sake of perpetuating a stalemate in disputes, but rather solving those disputes that to me is maturity. Um, and I want to see that happen. And to some degree us being here forever, um, you know, prevents them or, allows them to get away with remaining immature. Whereas if we were to in some situations say, you know what, we're pulling out, you know, we don't need to die. No American needs to die over the Scarborough Shoal. If you're going to give it to China, give it to them and then come to an agreement that China won't take any more. And then if they do take more, we'll defend you in that instance right so you know again it's a morphing set of dynamics and scenarios but i would not like to see us you know wasting blood and treasure to be here in perpetuity for matters that we should not die for
0: yeah with it and 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 again i I, i'm taking notes and i realize that this conversation could have been a four-hour conversation so again thank you for your time here this morning and if i can i wanted to sneak in two more questions before uh before you go the uh, let me give you a very base question. Uh, as especially as the con- the consumer base has expanded, so as China has now moved folks into the economy, which, which is which is I think is a, a modern day economic miracle. What at the end of the day does and again from a U.S. perspective, what does the U.S. offer? So, I mean, I, I, my takeaway listening to you is like, okay, we we, we provide mil- military stability in the region. We're, we're seen as a, hopefully, as an objective third party. So we can, to your point, we can navigate some of the emotions in the region and at least keep the peace. But in the old days, it used to be the American consumer was also a big part of this. Whereas now, you could argue that China's getting its sea legs now, and they may not be as dependent on that uh, for us. I mean, so what, at the end of the day, are we really offering them relative to before, because I think that's also a big reframing for the states, because I think we're still operating from a model 20, 30 years old.
1: You're absolutely right. And, you know, we are not the consumer of last resort anymore in the world economy. It is, again, a multipolar world economy. China is a larger trading partner of most of these countries than the U.S. is. That's why you have kind of global interest rate divergence. You see, you know, sort of uh, lower rates in Asia. They're going to stay that way. You know, monetary coordination amongst Asians now matters more. Than following the Fed's lead, for example. Um, but that said, you know, the the, 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 the fundamental question you ask, how are we still relevant? This is a question that I've tried to tackle, you know, in connectography and in this book. I say, mm-hmm. look, let's not talk about relevance in terms of these, you know, sort of just high-minded rhetorical principles, but let's rather measure it. And I say America still matters very, very structurally mm-hmm. to the world in four fundamental ways. There is still obviously the economic role. Uh, as a um, as a producer and a consumer, um, as, of course, as a financial power. So American foreign investment, American financial networks, the role of the United States dollar as a reserve currency oh, yeah. and trade currency, all of that is more important than any other country in the world. So obviously, in that respect, the U.S. still matters. Then there's technology. American technology uh, is a critical, uh, you know, sort of a, a engine of productivity, modernization, corporate profits for us. Uh, And so forth. So American technology is still second and none in many categories and is still in very high demand. Certainly that's true of digital and social media uh, as well. So that's also a measurement. Energy, right? We're the largest oil and gas producer in the world. We're the swing producer. You know, OPEC no longer matters thanks to the shale revolution. So, uh, you know, we have been one of the largest energy providers to China over the last five years. Let's bear in mind ever since Mm -hmm. Congress lifted the uh, ban on hydrocarbon exports um, in 2015. So, again, energy markets, we matter. Military, obviously, you know, the U.S. matters uh, tremendously. Culturally, it matters tremendously. So whether it's, you know, I named five things there, uh, economics, military, uh, commodities, uh, culture um, and, uh, you know, uh, tech, uh, whatever else. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can take those things and measure them and say, how much do we matter? And if we want to remain relevant in the world, we need to nurture these areas of influence in the world and that's the way I look at it so I don't I don't get too emotional about these things I say if you really care about how relevant you are make sure that you are uh, categorizing it and measuring it
0: let me let me ask you one last question and 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 I want to Tap the uh, the morality point that you subtly alluded to. So so again, wearing and if you and I wore our American hats for a second, we could look at China and say, oh, it's very dystopian, and you know they they got the ability to do face recognition at a train station. So there's all these horrible things that Americans are reading about how the Chinese are exploiting technology. But if we take a step back, basic economic theory in terms of capitalism basically says the more people in the system, the better off everybody is, and One of the interesting parts about this, if we take the contra view and, and from a state sponsored view, look at China saying, look, you know, we're going to take eminent domain to the 10th degree. We're going to get everybody there as hard as we have to do it. We're going to move them into the system. How, how important and again, I'm going to, uh, hopefully not tripwire political discussion. You know where where it's clear the from an inclusion perspective, the more people you have in the system participating in the system, everybody's better off. And I I look at the way that again using China as a strum, and I look at or even India is a perfect another perfect example. Look at what they're doing with Paytm and 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 so on. You know, should the U.S. you know, and again, where we're not looking at it from a state perspective, you know, should the U.S. take a hard look at this? Because, it, you know, when you look at what China has achieved economically coming coming from the state, what they've done from an inclusion perspective, moving people from an agrarian economy uh, into a blue collar economy. Uh, should we take off our morality hats and say, hey, you know, at the end of the day, this this actually worked. And and maybe we should stop being so negative on immigrants and refugees and say, hey, the more people we have in, in the American economy, the better off we are or or are we just missing something?
1: Well, I mean, the question is uh, uh, the question is sequencing, uh, you know, which is sort of does, um, you know, does does political modernization necessarily follow from economic modernization or and, and, and is there a teleology anyway of political modernization? Is democracy the end of history? And what we see more and more countries are saying is, you know, look, we want rule of law, we want stability, we want some form of political inclusiveness, but it's not necessarily the case that we want, um, you know, sort of uh, a, a political democracy as it's practiced in the West. And every country has a right to say that. Again, going back to our earlier conversation, they have. 4,000 years of political history and political systems and different cultural mindsets and backgrounds and degrees of development, so it's kind of ridiculous for someone to think that, um, you know, that uh, every system has to become like ours, right? Um, so, you know, I think that they're going to, they're on their own journey, uh, again, what I sort of report on in the region, um, you know, there, there is a China exception, you know, to every rule, but, but as I point out, that there are a lot more democracies and people living in democracy in Asia than people living in authoritarian states. uh, Just to be clear, you know, as you and I know, um, India, Indonesia, uh, the Philippines, they're all having elections this spring. That is um, that is uh, 1.8 billion people. That's way larger than the population of China. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to look at Asian governance not through the prism of China, nor through the prism of America, but through the prism of each and every individual country. And I see a clear shift towards a um, growing sense of inclusiveness, um, you know, in, in political systems uh, in Asia. You know, there is more consultation uh, for sure. Um But uh, there may not be more Western style kind of, you know, a liberal democracy. Or if there is, it'll take time and it's not really going to look like America in the end. And quite frankly, that's fine. So long as they are becoming more, um, you know, sort of inclusive, uh, respectful of individual rights and so forth, and that that we do see evidence of that, that would be a good thing.
0: Well, well, Parag, I think we've talked about everything except for religion. So we'll leave that for for another conversation. Again, uh, uh, Parag Khanna, your book is fantastic. The future is Asian. Uh, as we as we said here, the chapter on a history of the world and Asian view is is more than worth uh, the, the price of the book. Love this conversation. Uh, I know we're going to have a lot of feedback from our listeners on it. And uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Thank you so much, Frank. Great to chat with you.
0: All right, my friend. Have a great week.
1: You too. Take care. We'll see Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye.
0: And that'll do it for this week's segment of Unhedged. As always, thank you for tuning in and we'll look forward to talking and speaking next time. Take care.